0: everyone and a very warm welcome to morning worship. It's lovely to be joined again by some of our family and friends from across the country and the other side of the Atlantic. As you know our Minister Katrina is on leave this week so we are delighted to welcome back, if in a slightly different mode, uh, Graham Miko-John from the Scottish Baptist College where he lectures in theology and we are also going to be hearing the voices of Elizabeth and Ian Uh, Paul and Brian in the course of this service. We'll be singing along with recordings of ourselves as usual, but as well as Paul on keyboard today, we've got the full band. We'll hear Leo, Ailey, Sarah, Freya and Yang Yang. Then at 7pm this evening, the Baptist Union of Scotland will be hosting their next live prayer broadcast on Facebook Live. That's facebook.com forward slash Scottish Baptist forward slash live. If you didn't get an email from me on Friday with the August edition of The Church Magazine, just uh, drop me an email or give me a buzz uh, and I will send it to you. Just two messages from people who probably won't be able to join us today. The first is uh, from Antoinette. If you've managed to read her piece in the Key already, you'll know that this is hurricane season in the Bahamas and uh, they were expecting uh, quite massive power outages today. So she doesn't think she'll be able to get online until Hurricane Isaias, which I think is actually Isaiah in English, uh, till Hurricane Isaiah has passed. But she sends her greetings to us all. And then Tamara may not be able to join us either from Marburg in Germany today. Um, she wants us to know we may not see her for a few weeks as her grandma, who lives about three hours away, is now receiving palliative care. So she'll be travelling there each weekend to see her and to support her mum who has MS. Please remember these people uh, as we join for worship, safe and cosy in our homes today. Next Sunday morning we gather for worship at 11am as usual when our Minister Katrina will be back with us. These are all our notices.
1: Good morning, it's uh, really good to join with you and spend some time together. Uh, before I really start, I want to say thanks to Anne for all her work in guiding me through this uh, service prep. It's just an extra couple of steps having a visitor while doing church in this way. So again, uh, my thanks go to you, Anne. I hope this morning's service will be hope-filled. I think in a strange world, having hope becomes all the more important. And so to begin our service, let's read from Psalm 24. It's a wonderful psalm of adoration. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him Let's pray together. Lord, as we gather here in this place and this time, a now familiar setting and a weekly rhythm set in our calendars, we thank you that we're here to meet with you afresh. May this gathering today be a time when we find a moment in and out of time, a moment of meeting with you when the daily veil that at times covers our worlds and our lives is removed and we see your glory. Glory revealed in the beauty of the universe you have created, beauty revealed in the community we are part of, beauty revealed to us in your precious word, and most of all, beauty revealed in the love of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us again today to come to a quiet place, to meet with you in new ways, ways that help us glimpse how things really are when we truly allow your light to transform us and the whole world. And let us pray using the words that Jesus taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus
2: went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him.
1: Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things.
2: Then he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to become one of my followers, Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them,
1: Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. enjoy coming to visit you at Hillhead. And once again, it's uh, really good to be with you, even if with you means sharing our time together through a screen. In any tradition I've worshipped in for any length of time, there's been no real great attachment to the Christian calendar. I understand why Baptists have a mixed reaction to it. However, I do appreciate checking into the Christian calendar every now and again, as it reminds me of some of the important events of the church. For example, this week coming on August the 6th, it is Transfiguration Day, at least it is in some Christian calendars. Um, And I'm not sure that I'd necessarily jump at the chance to speak on the transfiguration. But at the same time, it's one of these important events that often gets overlooked or avoided. Perhaps by the end of the service, I'll wish that I'd taken one of those options. There's a funny story um, behind today's reading. You may have noticed that it stops in the middle of the suggested passage divisions, and there's good reasons for that, which I'll get to in a moment. However, when communicating with Anne about the reading, she responded by asking me if it meant to have such a strange stopping point. I assured her I had a plan and I didn't want to follow the normal rules. I told her I wanted to end on the words of verse seven. And wisely and very kindly replied if I meant the reading to be from Mark and not Luke, as I initially indicated. Having a plan really only works if you write what you mean. I'm blaming holiday season along with a new puppy to distract me. The new puppy may make an appearance at some stage today, who knows. Of course, the reality is I could have read from any of the accounts of the transfiguration, but I chose Mark's gospel because of the way he tells the story. And I'll share a video with you in a few minutes that summarizes Mark's approach well. However, first, I want to think about the transfiguration in particular. I've already spoken a little bit about following the normal rules, and this event very much doesn't follow the normal rules. The transfiguration is most definitely an abnormal event, and it's actually quite important that it's considered like that, I think the question of miracles is interesting. For those that know me, I'm particularly rational. I tend not to see the supernatural in the day-to-day, but prefer to understand and to explain. Maybe I'm in a product of the Enlightenment thinking, but I think it's more just the way that I'm wired. So you can trust me when I say that the transfiguration was not normal, because I mean it. I think though there's a difference between the miraculous being a matter of blind faith and seeing miracles as events that flow from the character of God. If this seems a strange distinction, let me try to explain. CS Lewis in a well-known essay entitled Miracles, which can be found in his book, God in the Dock, writes of two types of miracles. The first are miracles that take the actions of God that have already happened and speeds them up, or makes them more present in the everyday. So he uses the the example of water turning into wine and says that this happens in nature. Rain falls, grows the vine, and eventually becomes wine. Christ's miracles, in some sense, take those natural processes and short circuit them, for want of a better phrase. The second type of miracle are signs of things to come, of which he says the transfiguration is one such example as is, for example, raising people from the dead. In some way, then, Lewis thinks that miracles are already woven into the fabric of God's creation. I'm not going to go into detail on what I think about his arguments, but I think it is an interesting approach. For me, it can be summarized by saying, if God has the ability to create the world from nothing and everything in it comes from God, then turning water into wine or raising someone from the dead is really child's play. For some reason, I think we often struggle to contend with these lesser miracles than we do with the greater miracle of creation. It's easy to forget that God in Christ and through the Spirit is the same God who called creation into being from nothing. However, the transfiguration helps remind us of that. There's lengthy debate between commentators about whether this event was a misplaced post-resurrection story because of some of the imagery seems to be more suited to the events of the resurrection, but generally most commentaries think that it's very intentionally placed where it is in Mark's narrative. I wanted us to hear the verses just prior to the main transfiguration event to give its context. Again, most commentators think the transfiguration is used as a reminder to readers that Christ is God incarnate. Describing the events in Matthew's Gospel, Hagner writes, Whereas in our day most Christians need to have a revelation concerning the full humanity of Jesus, who has been abstracted into the doctrine of Trinity, it was not so with the disciples. They, having a few days earlier heard Jesus speak, in a most unexpected and disconcerting way about his death, needed at this point some assurance of the true identity of Jesus as Messiah, Son of God. That resonated with me. I think we're generally, we have no problem declaring that Christ is God in our worship and our confessions. We sometimes struggle to think of Christ as a human who ate, drank, and I imagine went to the toilet. But the reverse is the truth for the disciples who ate and drank with Jesus and probably were there when he needed to excuse himself from the table to find the restroom. And stranger still, when they began to realize that Jesus was indeed the long promised Messiah, to hear him speak of his death would be utterly unthinkable. The transfiguration becomes a point where Christ's dual nature is most apparent, fully human and fully divine. God is revealed to us on earth through Christ. Not only does this event serve as a narrative episode to emphasize the divine alongside the human nature of Christ, it also presents us with some important imagery as the gospel of Mark points us towards Christ the Messiah. I want to concentrate on just two of these images. I guess I think they're the most important ones though that's only my judgment there are others and it's not to say they are unimportant. Just these ones really stuck out to me when I was reading the passage. The first image is of the mountain and the cloud, not to mention the appearance of Moses. This setting is meant to remind the reader of the Exodus narrative, and in particular when Moses receives the law in Exodus 24. There, Moses ascends a mountain, and the presence of God is represented by the mountain being covered in clouds. In both cases, there are three companions that go up the mountain, and the main character has a transformed, shining appearance. It signals to us the making of the first covenant with the Israelite people is being revisited here. The Exodus narrative and the giving of the law stands out in the story of Israel as a pivotal moment. It was God speaking to God's chosen people, cementing his presence with them. Evans states that no other event in Jewish salvation history was remembered with greater reverence. And so as the readers of Mark's gospel take in this event, they immediately recognize something significant is happening. And moreover, it's being suggested that Jesus is greater than Moses, promising that God will have an even closer relationship with his people. The second image this scene conjures up is the words that we ended our reading with. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. For those with keen ears, you'll probably be more familiar with the similar words from Jesus' baptism, recorded right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. For those with very keen ears, you might recognize similar words in Genesis 22, talking about Abraham and Isaac. That passage is for another time, but for our purposes, it's suffice to note that although other Gospels start earlier, Mark's Gospel starts with Jesus' baptism, and this is significant for the story being told. With the transfiguration echoing the beginning of the story, this event signals an important reconfirmation of who Jesus is, as well as marking a turning point in the story. Up until this point, Jesus looked very much like a human, a great prophet perhaps, a miracle worker, but the Messiah, the jury was still out. Upon Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah, and now in the transfiguration, No doubt is left in the reader's mind that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, confirmed as God incarnate by God himself. Again, Evan sums this up well. The heavenly voice recalls the words uttered at the time of Jesus' baptism and serves as a second divine endorsement. Jesus' talk of rejection and death has not disqualified him from his messianic task. He is still God's son and his message, now placed in a new light, must still be heeded. Hopefully, that's given you some insight into the context of the passage and some helpful ideas to chew over. I'm going to ask for a video to be played from an organization called The Bible Project, which hopefully expands on these ideas and places them in the wider context of the whole book of Mark. After the video, I just want to share a few short thoughts on what all this might mean for us today. The Gospel of Mark is a book
3: in the Bible about the life of Jesus and the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark.
4: Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether
3: or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So, let's stop right there because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with.
4: Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome. And so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the messianic king. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together. And Jesus answers both of these questions.
3: Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who
4: Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God.
3: One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear. It's presenting Jesus as the Messiah.
4: Yes, but... As you are reading through this first half of Mark, you will notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account. It is very strange.
3: Yeah, why keep it a secret?
4: So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus does not want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes
3: his disciples away and he asks them, Who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens
4: because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic King, and it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant. Or, in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served,
3: but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really
4: intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in
3: confusion and even fear. OK, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews.
4: He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it is here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that is going on. He says, surely this is the Son of God. Which is crazy. It is an enemy who is first putting it all together that Israel's
3: messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That is the structure of the book of Mark. But the book does not end with Jesus dead on the cross. No.
4: So on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it is empty. And then there is this angel standing there instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they do not tell anyone because they are afraid. And that is how the book ends.
3: Which is a really abrupt ending.
4: Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So, all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle, and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting
0: for?
1: So what does this mean for us today? I want to highlight two assurances we can derive from this understanding of the transfiguration. The first is a core principle of Christology. The dual nature of Christ as fully human and fully divine means we can be assured of our reconciliation with God. It was Gregory Nazianzen that said, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed, indicating that the humanity of Jesus was necessary to reunite us with God. And yet Christ is also fully divine because it is only God who can save. In some ways, this is the most basic principle of Christianity, and we wouldn't want to doubt the efficacy of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And yet, I think the simple reminder is comforting. In a chaotic world full of suffering and oppression, it can be difficult to remember that God is for us. The transfiguration, the revelation that the man, Jesus Christ, is God, reminds us that God did not leave his creation to decay, but rather, in Christ, God is for us in all things. He came amongst us, moved into the neighbourhood to establish his kingdom on earth and to show us in no uncertain terms that his kingdom will prevail in spite of humanity's efforts to the contrary. I don't know about you, but it feels... Like 2020 uh, has not been a good year. And even though much has been shaken, there seems to be unshakable pillars of injustice, oppression, and greed. Without wanting to suggest that we become idealists or escapists, sometimes visiting the Mount of Transfiguration helps us to believe that God will prevail. Evans writes, In the minds of most, talk of death surely implied defeat and failure of mission. What is needed is a convincing and dramatic indication that Jesus continues to be God's agent of redemption. The Transfiguration serves this purpose. It's intended to reassure Mark's readers that the necessity of Jesus' death does not result from a withdrawal, withdrawal of heavenly favour. Jesus' mission and purpose have not been compromised. Perhaps we need this reassurance once again today. The second assurance is similar to the first, except instead of the assurance of Christ on earth, the transfiguration also reminds that God in Christ is still God. And I think it's important to remember this. You might have heard it said that God understands our suffering because of Christ's suffering. However, I think that God has always known what it's like to suffer. God didn't suddenly learn compassion in Christ. God has always been compassionate and aware of the suffering of his people. We learn that early on in the story of Exodus when God hears the cries of his people when in slavery. But what we do learn in Christ is that despite the suffering, despite the oppression, even to the point of death, God still prevailed. I don't want to sound triumphalistic, as if suffering goes away or that if we are Christians, we don't experience suffering. However, I think it's important that we recognize that even in times of suffering, God is supreme. David Bentley Hart imagines the cross like this. He subverts death and makes a way through it to new life. The cross is thus a triumph of divine love, sweeping us up into itself, taking all suffering and death upon itself without being changed, modified, or defined by it and so destroying its power and making us, by participation in Christ, more than conquerors. In Christ on the cross, we understand that God subverts death and reminds us of his good purposes. In the midst of a pandemic, in a world of crazy politics, and when racism and oppression never seems far away, I think it is reassuring to remember that God is still God. As Christians, we must hold on to the hope that is God's faithfulness and continue to witness to his divine love. God never stops being God, even in times of suffering and death. And the transfiguration assures us of this, of this. Right at the moment where there is a suspicion that Jesus might not be the Messiah, God assures us that Jesus is Lord and God. And I think we need that kind of reassurance today. The Transfiguration is an important narrative episode in the book of Mark, making it absolutely clear that Jesus is Messiah. For us today, the Transfiguration is an important event as it extends hope to us at a difficult moment in world history. We remember that God came close, and in spite of the suffering, God is for us. We remember that even in moments of suffering, God is still God and his faithfulness remains. I don't want to be ignorant to the suffering or pretend it is not real. But my hope is that by remembering the transfiguration, it will help you grasp something of the unshakable hope that God's faithfulness brings. As we move into a time of communion, let's read from Mark's gospel again, from chapter 14 and the account of the Last Supper. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I think in some ways the Last Supper feels distant from the heights of the transfiguration. You can't help but read this passage without the foreboding of the cross. But as I've shared this morning, all through the narrative of Mark's gospel runs the dual nature of Christ as he is revealed to be the promised Messiah. And so in communion, we remember both the very human pain and the suffering of the cross, but also God's unstoppable divine love that sweeps us up into Christ's death and resurrection. So we take the elements we eat the bread and we drink the wine or your equivalent we share not only in this sacramental act but more importantly we share in the life of God together being in Christ and through the spirit let's take time to reflect and remember as we witness to the unswerving faithfulness of God let us eat and drink together now
5: We have shared communion together. Now let us pray together. God of community and hospitality, we have shared communion. But the nagging thought persists. Who is not yet present at the feast of life because of injustice, of oppression, of vulnerability, of loneliness. Who have we not noticed because their voices are silenced or because we do not think that they are worth noticing? God, who revealed new vision to the disciples in the midst of transfiguration, open our eyes and ears and hearts afresh this day, as you come down the mountain into our daily living and challenge us anew. And as we pray this morning for others and for ourselves, we call to mind those who have revealed to us new ways of understanding about what it means to be a follower of Jesus may we continue to take the gifts of life that they have given to us and to offer them to others. And with all this in mind, we pray for our own community of faith here at Hillhead, the people with whom we journey most closely as followers of Jesus, the people with whom we share ever new insights of faith, This week our prayer rota encourage us to remember Paul, Helena, Lily, Clifford, Katrina G, Jean and Walter, Paul, Rico, Ailey and Leo, Katrina H and Ben and Rachel. For our wider Baptist community in Scotland, we're encouraged today to think of Ivy Young who's a Ministry Administrator for our union. For the Fellowship at Hopeman. The Fellowship at Inverkeething. And the Fellowship in Inverness. And this week for BMS World Mission, we remember the work in Mozambique, providing soap and hand-washing guidelines to the children and families involved in preschool education projects. In India, helping to distribute tens of thousands of meals to informal workers who can't find work across Delhi and Kolkata. In Afghanistan, providing mental health support and counselling services for staff and patients affected by the cultural stigma of coronavirus. And as our society, close to us and worldwide, continues to wake up to a way of living which is out of all recognition to the one we were living just 21 weeks ago. We remember this morning those who are currently unwell for any reason and for those who are concerned about loved ones. Those whose anxiety for the immediate threat has been succeeded with an anxiety for the future months. Those whose entire income stream has dried up or who are facing redundancy. Those who cannot afford or cannot adapt to the interconnectedness that so many enjoy those who are exhausted as a result of underlying anxiety or through challenging working conditions those who are afraid to be at home those who are afraid to go out and for all those who are bereaved and grieving. God, through us and others, be their healer, comfort, and protection. Be their strength, shield, and provision. Be their security, safety, and close companion. Lord of every pilgrim heart, bless our journeying on these roads we never planned to take, but through your surprising wisdom we discover we are on. Amen.
1: For the benediction to close our service today, I would like to read from First Timothy chapter 6. I hope these words are a fitting end to all that we've heard and thought about as was focused on the transfiguration and the revelation of Christ as fully human and fully divine. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen.